Noise. It's everywhere. Every day the world is in stereo, sound all the way up, vibrating our worst fears. But also, in some ways, it's changing our perspective about who we are and where we want to be, which is exactly what I'm doing right now, zeroing in on who I am and where I want to be. Let me introduce 1228, a new podcast exploring all the things that make us human. In this episode, we'll be focused on the COVID-19 crisis. I mean, do we even have a choice? I don't think I have a choice. I think I have a responsibility to seek out real information that I can pass on to people who are vulnerable to false information. We have some expert advice here, so stick around. We'll speak to a pharmacist with helpful tips on how to self-treat and when to call the doctor. We'll get the perspective from a man driving all the way to Texas from New York And we'll also hear from a clinical psychologist explaining the nature of panic and why right now, routine is so important. And last but not least, Dad tells us it's all going to be okay. I'm Christine, your host. And obviously, I don't have a fancy mic, and I'm not all that familiar with this platform, but I'm learning. Full disclosure, these interviews were recorded more than a week ago, over the phone, most of which was done by an open window, on my bed, or in the living room, so you may hear a few squawking birds in the background. Let's begin. Part one, the pharmacist next door. A lot of us have been seeing some pretty interesting things on social media about COVID-19. For example, I read a few weeks ago that if you hold a blow dryer up your nose, the heat will break down the virus and keep it from entering your lungs. That's just one example out of hundreds. Also, we hear so much about symptoms, but not a whole lot on how to self-treat. We've been told it's not unlike having the flu, but that's a scary thought. I mean, I've had the flu and it was 14 days of misery and another five or so days to regain my strength. What's the right way to treat ourselves if we think we're infected, but not sick enough to go to the hospital? Where I live, we've been told to stay home, unless of course we're having trouble breathing, which is another scary thought. If you do go to the doctors or ER and you don't have the virus, you risk getting it. Even going to the pharmacy to pick up NyQuil or cough drops feels like you're stepping onto a whole new planet, wondering if you'll encounter the invisible alien that basically wants to occupy your lungs and then kill you. It's straight out of sci-fi, but there's no Captain Kurt to beam us the hell out of this place. I reached out to Angela Williams, a pharmacist in North Carolina, for some answers. My name is Angela Williams. I am a pharmacist. I've been a pharmacist mostly in the retail setting for about 30 years, but um, in the last five years, I've worked as a clinical oncologist consulting patients who are starting new oral chemotherapy and I'm originally from Connecticut but I've been living in North Carolina for about 28 years. Wow okay you like it down there is the weather nice? It's much nicer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay so I have to ask 
Is there a known way to prevent becoming infected aside from just, you know, normal hand washing and um, the social distancing that you're aware of? Mostly keeping yourself healthy, your immune system healthy is really, in addition to these other preventative measures, the best way to avoid contracting the virus. And sometimes you may actually have the virus and not present symptoms. And so your body's immune system knows how to fight things. And that's what we hope is that by distancing ourselves from others who may have the virus and keeping ourselves healthy, the combination will result in not having any life-threatening type of symptoms. Okay. So like taking zinc or like using a blow dryer to blow hot air up your nose, that's that's not really a thing, is it? I probably would say the risk of blowing a blow dryer up your nose is greater than the benefits. As far as zinc and other supplements, you certainly could use them if that's what you're used to and those are things that you use and you know don't conflict with any uh, underlying conditions that you have or medicines that you take. Uh, zinc actually is orally. When you take zinc orally, like these zinc lozenges, they actually create, in layman's term, a film in your lining of your mouth and your throat and what it does is it helps to create an environment where viruses cannot live and that's why there's been a huge movement in the last few years on zinc products because that's in a way how zinc works topically of course vitamin c helps with your immune system, eating healthy, just whatever you normally do to keep yourself healthy, I would say is a better option than taking a blow dryer and, you know, trying to kill the coronavirus. Okay, because we have heard or I have heard that we don't even know yet about heat. Generally speaking, yes, right? But with this particular virus or its, like, cousin strands, relatives that are mutating, we don't know enough about it yet. Is that right? That's true. And if you look at history, you know, the flu, for example, there's seasons in which the flu is more prevalent. And those tend to be as the weather gets cooler. And so... No one has determined that that this heat is a way of killing the virus. I think the heat part of it may not be as uh, developed in its understanding as some of the some of the other options. Okay, so we're we're hearing a lot about the symptoms: fever, sore throat, tightness in the chest, or you know, having trouble breathing, but. We're not really hearing about how to treat it. I mean, I have heard treat it like you would the flu if you're home, it's sick. But uh-huh. what are some of the things, because this does seem a little more serious, right, than the flu for some people. Right. Um, some of the stories that I've I've heard are pretty horrible. And what are some ways that we could self-treat at home if we're like in an area where we're being told, don't come into the emergency room unless you're having trouble breathing. First of all, I, that, that is a, 
a good advice. You know, that's part of the isolation, quarantine, social distancing. Don't head to the emergency room. You know, first thing, call your doctor. If you don't have a doctor, call a friend that might know what's going on. Someone you might know, your local pharmacy. Talk to the pharmacist there. Call maybe an urgent care where there's some medical professional that you can talk to. 99% of patients that have corona symptoms have a fever. So if you have a fever, you're going to treat your fever like you would any other fever. Usually it's recommended, especially in children, not to use aspirin products for all the obvious reasons that we don't use aspirin in children, which I won't get into, but you know, Tylenol. Now, if you do have a fever, it's probably a good idea to let someone know. You may want to get tested for corona because like I said, 99% of patients or people that exhibit fever um, could have corona. You could have some other virus or infection. About 60% of people have a cough, like a dry cough. If you're having cough, shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, use a humidifier, take some hot showers, drink tea, same old thing your grandmother's told you to do when you're not feeling well, hot soup. You know, there is some logic behind the old wives' tales. You drink hot chicken soup. There's a lot of vitamins, vegetables, minerals. It's a good idea to just treat the symptoms like you would any other cold or flu. The difference is we want to make sure that if you're exhibiting symptoms that you are being tested for corona. So reach out to your local health facility, whether it's a hospital or your doctor's office, and find out what the best way to get tested. Because if you are positive, then you're going to want to self-quarantine. It's been shown that the symptoms can progress pretty rapidly, especially in people that are compromised, whether you're real old, real young, infants, the elderly, immunosuppressed, you've got already health issues with your lungs, those people may want to seek some medical attention a little bit sooner. But like if a person typically when they get sick, if they take NyQuil, that's okay. That'll sure. reduce the fever and maybe help you sleep a little bit. Chicken yep. soup, tea, and rest. Rest, yes. And fluids. Make sure you're um, hydrating. You know, when you hydrate, you hydrate all those cells and all those cells work in the bigger picture and then all of a sudden your body's machine is working better and you're able to flush a lot of these things out. If you're running a fever, they say don't bundle up, you know, let the cool <laughs> air or turn on a fan. You know, what's what's the deal with that? You're probably fighting the fever more from the inside than the outside, right? So you're fighting your fever individually. Your body's immune system is fighting it. If you have chills and you're cold, by all means, bundle up, right? If you're sweating, take it off. It's just your body's way of telling you what it needs. And we have to sometimes take a step back and just listen to our own bodies. There's probably no right or wrong answer to that. If you do take something that reduces fever, you may feel some of those things as your fever breaks. 
So I would say whatever makes you feel better. You might be really cold and bundle up, and then all of a sudden you just start sweating. If you sleep and rest, a lot of times you'll notice when you're sick, you wake up and you're just drenched in sweat because you just let your body take care of it while you were sleeping from the inside out. There's this medication that, you know, we've heard a lot of talk about that people with lupus or autoimmune disease use. And I'm, I just, you know, would like to hear from somebody in pharmaceuticals. This is not a drug that you should be taking if it wasn't, if it's not prescribed to you. Um, certainly don't steal it from your, your grandmother's medicine cabinet to try to prevent this, right? It's not a preventative measure. It's a possibility of something that may or may not help. And there's not been enough studies and it really should be left to the professionals. Correct. That's very good advice. Um, and just a little addition to that, there are some clinical studies that are actually active right now, some that have been active in other countries, and they are testing these so-called medications like you're referring to, but they're also testing them along with other medicines that we know of, some very common antibiotics in combination with those. There's, I believe, a clinical study that's testing that. There's also antiviral medications that they're looking at. And in, you know, some extreme cases, there may be some facilities, hospitals uh, that are using medications under the guidance of infectious disease doctors and, you know, people that are way smarter than me and are way more experienced in infectious disease and viruses than I am. So no, don't 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 try to create some antiviral <laughs> treatment because if it was that easy again, they'd be doing it. You know, we'd be taking all of grandma's <laughs> medications and giving them to people who are truly infected with the uh, coronavirus. My grandmother's medication was a hot toddy, which is rum and tea. <laughs> Where's a place where our listeners could find you? Because you do have a website with some helpful tips. I do. It's called The Pharmacist Next Door. Don't forget the, T-H-E, Pharmacist Next Door. And there are uh, some topics. I'm currently putting together a post about the coronavirus. There will be some links um, so that I don't overload you. On the first post, if you're interested in different things, I'll have some of this information that we discussed, practical practices to keep yourself healthy. Currently, there's some posts regarding yoga and ways to reduce stress. And I will say, if I can, one more little nugget. Stress is the enemy. Stress does things to your body that actually lower your body's immune system. So as crazy as things may seem, it's really a good idea to remember that this too shall pass and you can only control what you can control and reduce your stress about it because stress will cause physical symptoms and it will cause your body's immune system to break down. Okay. And that just inspired one more question. <laughs> I just, no it, and this is, you know, this is just a theory of mine and sure. it's not just mine. I've, I've obviously been influenced by other places and books and articles and things. I know there's been some studies about the placebo effect 
And, Uh you know, we're told that stress can make you sick or that, say, a hypochondriac can make themselves sick. If you're paranoid or you're worried, you can actually start to notice symptoms of whatever it is you're worried about. If that's true, can we make ourselves on sick in a way? Are we able to send messages from our brain to our body by visualizing and strengthening our immune system or attacking the, you know, the critical area of, you know, disease or infection or what have you and cure ourselves. Is, do you think there's any truth to that at all on any level? Yes. in the short answer. (laughs) Um, so I, I could expand on this tremendously, but one, I'm a pharmacist, so some people tend to think that I prefer to, you know, take a pill for, for everything, when in fact, I'm somewhat the opposite. I, I see the value in traditional Western medicine, but I do believe, based on what I know and the chemicals that are released when you are under stress, and on the flip side, the chemicals that are released when you're not under stress. And most commonly, you would, I think most people are familiar with, you know, happy hormones, endorphins and things like that when you're exercising. So exercising is great for your body, but it's also great because it produces chemicals that help you uh, reduce or eliminate these things that can cause disease, right? And so I do agree with you that you can flip it the other way. And if you are not stressed or try not to be stressed unnecessarily, take care of yourself. You're now creating an environment where you're more able to fight things. And yes, in fact, heal yourself. To keep up with Angela and learn more about COVID-19, along with many other helpful resources, you can find her at thepharmacistnextdoor.com. Part 2. Road Trip I caught up with Lendo, a dear family friend and my favorite genius, at the tail end of his travels. He's a computer engineer, and well, he has a hole in his skull, smack dab on his forehead. That's a different story for another time, and one I'm sure will tell. But what I can say is trepanation has been known to increase the blood flow, making the brain function better. And let me tell you, this guy's brain is impressive. Anyway, he left Staten Island on March 23rd and headed south all the way to Texas. I was worried about him being on the road, especially since he's over 70. But for the record, he's not your typical 70-something, not by a long shot. He's Lendo, king of the road trippers, top down, sun on his face, ready for anything. Hi, Lendo. Hi. Tell me a little bit about how you prepared for this really long road trip, starting in Staten Island, heading all the way south to Texas. Uh, I guess uh, a lot of people are going to 
in self-quarantine. I live at home out in Staten Island. I work at home. I go out far less than I used to. I haven't been to Manhattan since uh, last month. Um, so I didn't really have to do much except stay quarantined. And uh, on this trip, of course, I was I was kind of nervous about, you know, with everything shutting down, am I going to find places to stay? And uh, um, it turned out there are hotels open along the way. What about, like, diners and gas stations? That's <laughs> a dream. Gas stations, of course, are open. Um, I carry, I have a box of latex gloves. They're rather old. <laughs> so, some of them are crumbling, but some of the ones that work, I, you know, I always slip on latex gloves when I do the gas pump thing and go into a store. Um, and I have a little bottle of, uh, of course, I couldn't buy hand sanitizer, but I have a, I had some isopropyl alcohol, which I mixed with hand lotion, and I use that pretty regularly. Normally, when I go on a road trip, I just go, I stop when I'm tired, you know, I find some place to go, just take it as it comes. But I guess one of the different things about this trip, I kind of wanted to have a little more certainty. So I made a reservation in a hotel down in Cape May. I figured I'd go the first day just a few hours to Cape May, New Jersey, and then I could take the ferry down to Delaware and like going down the coast and then along the Gulf Coast. Well, they called me the day before and said, I'm sorry, we got to cancel your reservation because we have to close down. So I, I got past New Jersey the first day and I found other hotels all open. I think that first night was a bed and breakfast right on the beach in Cape May, which is not along the way to anywhere. So that was pretty much a non-essential hotel. Uh, but the ones along the way are open. I mean, a big holiday in here in uh, Beaumont, Louisiana. Oh, it's a huge, must be eight or ten story. They say they're 25% full. But it's eerie, you know, it's this huge thing with an atrium. And, you know, like it was just built, not a soul in sight. The way it is everywhere. <laughs> what about traffic? Is traffic, you know... Does it exist? I'm kind of surprised the traffic on the interstate is, uh, it's not really much lighter. Lots and lots of trucks. That's very encouraging. All carrying, I mean, I'd like to think they're all carrying paper towels and hand sanitizer, <laughs> but there's lots of products out on the road. <laughs> the truckers are out there. Is there anything, like, peculiar or strange you've noticed? No. One of the things I do driving along through the country is that I, I listen to local radio. So going through uh, Louisiana, I was going on the AM dial, checking out maybe I'd find some talk radio. And uh, there are a lot of Christian stations. And uh, one of them was talking about a pastor who has a big congregation. I mean, is he a pastor or an evangelist? But he's one of these people with a huge church and people come from all over to, to get his preaching. And he's continuing. Louisiana State has said no, no gap gatherings over, mm, is it 10 or 50? But they've ruled you shouldn't have any gatherings. And he's getting a thousand people to come to his church. And they're going to heal by the power of prayer. And uh, they had, you know, his voice came in just a little bit, you know, inviting people to come. And the Lord will save us at all. He doesn't go for this uh, quarantine business when you've got the Lord on your side. So he's carrying on. And I, I don't know uh, the authorities have decided how to deal with him or not. But not everyone is uh, following the quarantine routine. The ones who believe 
believe in prayer. We'll see how that works. In New Orleans, the, the broadcaster said, you know, the rats are out. The rats are saying, hey, where's our stimulus? You know, they kind of live on the dumpsters outside the restaurants. So with the restaurants all closed and the empty dumpsters, the rats are hungry. And so they're out in the daytime now looking for stuff. So they've got rat traps all along Bourbon Street. Sometimes you see them at night, you know, like in New York. You see them at night once in a while. But they're out in the day because they're not getting their goodies outside the restaurants at night anymore. Tell me what you think is next, Lindo. What's what's coming? Oh, please. The future. I cannot tell the future. I mean, people, you know, people hear that I'm going from New York to Texas to visit family. What are you trying to do to them? But I have to remind them, you know, yeah, New York might be the epicenter, but uh, out in Staten Island, and I live in a house by myself, and I haven't been to the city in a long time, so I don't think I'm carrying stuff from New York down here. But, we're, you know, we're being careful. Well, yeah, we're trying to get me to anticipate the future, and I have no idea. You know? <laughs> and, uh, oh, come on. You, have... you want to be optimistic. I mean, some people are saying this will be over soon. You know, if they're wrong, okay. But it feels better today to think this is going to be over soon. So there's no harm in thinking this is going to be over soon. It's not like saying, oh, this is not really important. You know, we don't have to be getting. We're being all as careful as possible. And if we're not sitting here thinking, oh, my God, we're going to be like this all year, you know, I don't think it might last all year. But that should be a surprise. You know, I mean, we should hope that, that, that it's over soon. I mean, this is like a societal sickness. And when you're sick, it's good to focus on getting better. Yes, I'm going to go. I'm going to beat this. I'll be better next week, you know. Or, you know, someone gets cancer. You don't always think, oh, my God, I'm going to die. You say, oh, I'm not going to beat this, you know, and you just beat, and you just fight it, and you go, and you're just confident you're going to be all right, you know. And, well, if you're wrong, then you're wrong. But, you know, it's not like um, it, we have to distinguish between optimism and hope from just ignorance and, and, and neglect, of course. We, we, we have to keep it separate. Is there anything at all you want to say that, I haven't really given, you know, a, you an opportunity to say about what's happening right now. Uh, you know, I, I guess I want to say what I have found on this trip. You know, when you leave New York, everybody seems so friendly all of a sudden. You know, it's always the case. But, you know, go through the South, people are generally more friendly. And they're, they're nicer, you know, in New York. It's just an attitude. People, New Yorkers are much more protective and, and don't, they're not as, you know, congenial as the people in, in the South. But on the trip, I've found that the people are even nicer than usual. It's like whenever there's a, a disaster and we're all putting up with some kind of trouble, it, I think it brings out the best in people. People are being, being nice and, sure, you know, smiling and telling it be well and all, but it's, it's been, there's been a lot of reassurance, you know. I mean, I, one of the things I've been most concerned about traveling is like, I'm going to go to a hotel and sleep, put my face on a pillow that some stranger has been handling. You know, what kind of assurances do I have? And, uh, you know, the hotel management says all the time, oh, yeah, yeah, we take special care. But today at the Holiday Inn, I asked one of the housekeepers, I said, you know, what do you do? What do you do with the rooms? You, you wear gloves and a mask? Oh, yes, gloves, mask, absolutely. Yeah, sure. So 
be taking really good care. And um, yeah, we're getting through this together. Well, that's together a... alone. That's right. Or is it alone together? What's <laughs> the new thing? Are we alone together? No, no, that's normally. Normally, we're together alone. That's like New York social. <laughs> we're together alone, all staring at our phones. Now we're alone, all together. Yeah. Okay. And then wait. But that, that's a good note to end on. Lendo update. He's still in Texas, enjoying his grandkids and the warmer climate. He's not sure when he'll be back to Staten Island. Part 3. The Nature of Panic Most of us have been keeping track of how many days we've been self-quarantined. There's memes about it, everywhere, some of which make me giggle out loud. There's also a lot of panic. I've watched people go from, this isn't a big deal, chill out, to the world is doomed, head for your bunkers. I've seen countless conspiracy theories, and each day, there's more, like weeds choking out common sense. But most of us come up for air. We departmentalize. We get our house in order, clean doorknobs, and wash our hands. We find ways to distract ourselves. And just when we have everything under control and feel like we're semi-prepared, it's time to make another grocery store run, and the world flips upside down again. We're no longer on autopilot. It's like we're all either busy doing nothing watching The Tiger King on Netflix, or we're out getting essential supplies like we're the Secret Service guarding against something we can't see. By the way, it's day 25 for me, and I'm still holding it together, but not without a little help from my friends and family. We may not be able to meet up for dinner, but we're staying connected. And that brings me to Dr. Rex Saunders, a clinical psychologist. The theme for our conversation, the nature of panic. But we'll also hear how to keep ourselves sane in a time when crazy feels like the norm. I'm really wanting to explore uh, the nature of panic here. But first, do you think you could maybe characterize yourself for us in a few brief words to our audience? Um, I'm a doctoral level clinical psychologist. I have been working in the field of psychology for over 30 years now. I've, for the most part, worked sort of a broad, a broad spectrum. I've done testing. I've done, um, individual therapy, group therapy. I've, uh, I worked in a prison for several years, um, as a prison psychologist. I'm a generalist, I guess, more than anything else. If there's any areas where I, probably have more experience than others. It's adolescents, uh, young adults, and um, couples therapy. So can we can we go to this the nature of panic? And maybe with that we could start with the term um, the tragedy of the commons. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what that means? Well if you live in a high trust society and you live in a community that is a fully functioning community, there is a draw that people have to, to think in a more collective way as opposed to an individualistic way. And I think 
just kind of an example of this, if you go back to uh, the Viking era, for example, or England or wherever, just pick your spot. If there was a significant threat, the people would all get together and they would band together and they would share resources. This is a system that works very well when everyone plays by the game. The problem is when you have people who are um, antisocial within that sort of structure or asocial who do not play by that game and take more than their share. And this is a system that leads to a breakdown of communal trust and social cohesion within the group. And where does it come from? Like, what is it in somebody, you know, that... Well, we are a social species and we function both as individuals, as family members. And for millions of years, we all, we have also functioned in a uh, social setting. And just as you have differences in height, hair color and intelligence, there's differences in the social versus antisocial or asocial uh, levels of society that you have like a Jeffrey Dahmer who's totally asocial or you have a Mother Teresa who is like hypersocial and you have an entire range of individuals. And if there is adequate social pressure, the group will behave because they don't wish to be ostracized or thrown out of the group. There's social pressure for people to be pro-social. There's, um, if somebody hoards or if, uh, somebody takes more than their share, they would face being, uh, socially ostracized, which in a more primitive, simple, rural agrarian society could be a sentence of death. And if we go back to the ice age, it would be, um, a sentence of death. So there's a great deal of pressure. What happens when you have a society in which the individualism is hypertrophy, you wind up with individuals within that group who don't feel any reason not to take more than their share. That's greed. And that is one of the seven deadly sins. So whenever I even think of this, I'm like, don't say it, but I think it deserves a little attention. The toilet paper. And I know that it wasn't just toilet paper. It was hand sanitizer. It was cleaning products. But toilet paper seemed to be, you know, the headline. And so this would fall into that category, yes? Yes. Yes. And I think that there is a, I don't want to call it a hoarding instinct, but I think that, again, if you go back to a more a simple rural agrarian society, you did in fact have to stock up on food and resources to get you through the winter. And what would happen under those circumstances is, is, is there would be common crops or there'd be common property that was to be shared equally amongst the people of the group. And the problem happens when you have individuals who, who cheat. Before we started recording, we were talking about primal instinct. Can we, can we touch a little bit on that? Uh, sure. There are three imperatives that are, that are part of life itself. And the biological imperatives are stay alive. That's the first one, most important. The second one is reproduce. And the third one is expand your territory. And these are common to amoeba all the way up the 
the chain up to humans. And if you're trying to fulfill number one, which is the critical one, which is basically stay alive, that's a very powerful drive. And individuals will do a tremendous amount in order to to maintain their viability. There is also a social element in there where we have responsibility to other people in our group. You know, it's our uh, partners, it's our children, it's our it's our community. And those are all of the pieces that are in there. And under stress, the people who are more social will be thinking more of the people outside of their specific group because there's because there is a collective element here. If you have in case you have children, they are inherently more valuable than you because they are the next generation. The way that parents will make sacrifices for their children is significant. These are all of the pieces that are on the board. Is is there such thing as overreacting right now? Yes. Okay. I mean I mean that's the brief that's the brief answer. Reactions to dangerous situations are mediated by many factors and the most difficult one is not knowing how to defend yourself against it. If you look at the difference between mythology and science or astrology and astronomy, when people don't have a rational, actionable explanation, they tend to go for things that simply make them feel better. So do we as a society have a responsibility um, when it comes to sharing information with other people, especially in the age of social media? I don't know whether responsibility is the best way of um, conceptualizing that. We are a social species, and for millions of years, we lived in smaller units, tribal units, you know, maybe a dozen people. And within that context, there were roles, and there was expertise, and there were you know, age grades and everything else. And it is relatively easy. There's the, you know, they talk about being alone in the crowd. There's a great deal of that in the world today. And I think that, and I'm just going from my own experience here, I found that my neighbors are more inclined to speak to each other now than they were prior to this because there is a drive to reach out and share information and sort of come up with a collective strategy. These are not necessarily rational functions. These are what happens when people find themselves under stress and they're trying to make sense of it and they're trying to get through it without cracking up. Right. Keeping our, you know, trying to, to keep sane, even if we're a little on sane in the process. Well, when you're faced with chaos or chaotic situations, and may I say, I do not see any particular drive to make it easier for people to be calm in this situation. If you look at headlines in the media or any of the news aggregators, you get this kind of like horror picture of impending doom. And people reach out to each other for comfort. They're saying, well, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't going to be the end of the world, is it? And reaching out to people and being social is the most normal and functional thing that you can do. It draws people together. The, if you go to combat, these guys who are in combat together, 
uh, become extremely close because that's who they have when they're facing a crisis situation and they bond. I think that there is going to be a powerful uptick in marriages over the next year. And I think we're going to have a mini baby boom in about a year or two. I was going to, yeah, that's when you said that, the first thing I thought of was more babies. Yeah. There is a very strong tendency for couples to be formed when they go through a crisis together. And if you look back at people you've known and, you know, what the courtship was like, there's this drive, I think, almost, that if you successfully go through a critical period of time with another person, it's a bonding element. And I think, again, there is going to be a a great deal of that sort of thing happening over the next years. Let me ask you this. I've noticed sort of an outreach, like what you were just saying, but with maybe people who have had unhealthy relationships in the past, whether it be with family or, you know, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend type situation where people are reaching out to their past and, you know, saying, Hey, all of these things that have happened between us seem really tiny in comparison to what's happening right now. What is your take on that? And what would you say to people who have been in unhealthy relationships and are now in the situation to maybe rekindle those and move forward. That, of course, would have to be taken on an individual basis. Not inclined to encourage people to get involved in relationships that um, in the past have been non-functional or dysfunctional or, or, or abusive, based pretty much on the fact that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. I think there are relationships that have gone dormant over time, which is a little bit different, I think. You know, family members who haven't spoken to each other over this or that or the other thing. And under a stressful situation, as you said, these issues that seemed significant kind of pale when you're thinking the ultimates, when you're thinking of being sick and dying and or, you know, the enemy invading your territory or, you know, whatever crisis, these sorts of crises that have occurred to us throughout history. So really give it some thought before, you know, really look at what it was and how it ended before maybe opening that box. Yeah, I believe that the loneliness and a sense of helplessness can draw people together. And it's, that could be good or that could be bad. It depends very much on the individuals involved and how that relationship functions or could function or has functioned in the past. It's an individual issue more than anything else. I think it's perhaps more significantly a time to deepen the functional relationships that you already have and rekindle the dynamics of relationships that have been functional for you. What about people who are on their own right now? What are some healthy ways to, you know, keep your head above water in all of this? At the most basic, have a routine. And even if you were working and you're not working, wake up at the same time, set yourself out tasks during the day uh, that um, they have a beginning and a middle and an end. There's a certain a great deal of the things we do in life are process. And it's important to also have activities that 
allow you to say, well, that's done and just take a look at it and appreciate it and move on. I think that having routines, building structure in your life and uh, not allowing yourself to fall into despair and depression. In days gone by, if they wanted to break someone down, they would, you know, they use torture and all these other devices. The most effective one they use on people today, if they want to break them down, is they isolate them. You just leave someone alone, okay? No contact. The guys who are into Superman's prison, nobody speaks to them ever. They are alone in that cell 23 hours a day, and they start cracking. So it's important to seek out some kind of contact on top of keeping routines and keeping yourself busy. I call that farmer psychology. And you talk to farmers sometimes and they will, you know, and they'll say, well, I don't have time to be depressed. In case you're depressed, it's because you're thinking too much. You know, you should be working harder. And I certainly can't endorse that, but ultimately I can tell you that if you're in a bad frame of mind or a bad mood, keeping busy is um, has a lot going for it. It doesn't solve your problems, but it prevents you from ruminating on them. I know a few people who are engaged in this uh, digital second life game where they are, they make friends and they have, you know, they're able to reinvent themselves online and uh, they can create their character. And what do you think about that kind of distraction? Um, in a way, it, it is it is sort of harmless, but it is one level down in terms of being healthy social contact from what people in uh, SCA do, the Society for the Creative Anachronism, where they describe their real life as being their mundane life. And their real life is as a count or a duke or a knight, or they have these completely different personas, and they get together and they act them out. But they act them out socially and with each other. It's better than nothing, but it is not as good as actually having physical presence with other people. What do you think the social distancing means for us when the dust settles? At least one positive and negative, if you see any. I think that social distancing and um, self-isolation are a lot easier for introverts than for extroverts. The extroverts are taking a particular hit, and there is going to be a, a bump, I can't predict how much, in suicides and in depressive symptomology because extroverts really feed and fuel on social contact. I think that as situations lighten, there is a possibility that people who are more on the extroverted side will binge socially. I don't know if that's good or bad. I think that people who are leaning more towards the introverted side may, may reach out a, a bit more. I mean, there's a, if you push people into a situation where they are not getting social reinforcement, where they're not getting, you know, their social needs met, there is going to be kind of a backswing in both cases specifically how it works, it's difficult. I mean, I could say that for some people, being forced or coerced into being less social could be healthy. 
because it would allow them to deepen intimate relationships or perhaps get a better uh, grasp on relationships they may have not been attending to. Uh, so there's some potential positive ends to it. But again, if people are socially isolated, it will break them down too. So there is, so there is a, uh, risk factor. I think once everything lights up, the social instinct in humans is pretty, pretty robust. So I, I think that aside from some temporary responses, I don't, I, I would not predict there being any catastrophic responses. If you had the ultimate platform to reach the masses, do you have a message you would like for people to hear, you know, something that you could contribute to, um, to the world? At the most basic, it's a cliche, but this too will pass. Uh, there was a film that came out in the late fifties called on the beach in which in the aftermath of the thermonuclear war, there's this huge cloud of radiation coming in. And the, and this last group of survivors are on the beach in Australia, and they're basically waiting to die. I think there's a certain element of that mentality afoot right now. And I do not think that the, the instruments of communication are producing enough positive and hopeful influences for people to latch on to. I am just, as I said, if you look at just headlines, there is this kind of panic peddling almost. And that is not to allow the uh, severity of the situation uh, to be undermined, but alternately, I think it's important to maintain a calm and disciplined approach. Basically, if you look at how these sorts of things were handled, for example, back during the Second World War. Franklin Roosevelt would get on the radio every week and he'd do his fireside chats where he'd say, well, you know, you know, the Japanese are not going to invade California, even though, you know, they may want it to. It's a matter of maintaining morale and, again, keeping busy and not focusing completely on the things that they cannot control and trying to work on the things that they can do you have a, a good movie or book recommendation for people who are just looking for a, a way to escape this whole situation? Um, the razor that I use for any book or film that I enjoy is if it takes me to another place mm-hmm. and I find myself immersed in a different reality. And that's variable in between individuals. But any book, any film that takes you somewhere else is going to be better than sitting online reading all the doom and gloom and all the horror stories and following the news obsessively because people do that to an extent because they want to know what's happening. They want to know what they can do. And the healthiest thing to do is not necessarily to ignore it. It's to do all the healthy things, but ultimately not to dwell on the negatives because they will eat your soul. Is there anything else you think you might want to add to this? I think we've covered a lot of territory. I think that we are we are fundamentally talking about a crisis in progress. And the amount of solid information we have on this right now is varied, it's variable, and this too creates a chaotic state. Um, on one hand, we have people who are, you know, the end is coming. And on the other 
end of it, you say, well, this is just a big hoax. You know, there's nothing going on here. And I, I have found, generally speaking, just as a rule of thumb, if you look at a situation that is indeterminate and potentially chaotic, you get the, uh, the best case scenario and you get the worst case scenario. And you add them up and divide by two and you add one for positive outcomes. And that's generally where things wind up. If you're a worry wart and you're looking at the way things will go, you're going to tend to focus on the worst possible outcome. And over all the trials I have been through in my life, I have found that generally speaking, there is the best case and worst case. And generally speaking, it comes pretty much right up the middle on the whole. You take your best case, your worst case, Add them together, divide by two, and add one for positive outcome. That's pretty good advice. Part four, dad says everything's gonna be okay. recording you for my podcast. Is that okay? Absolutely. How are you feeling? I feel great. Thank you. How do you feel? I feel well. Thank you. Well, I mean, I feel great in my own uh, personal health, but I feel terrible for, you know, the, the situation, people that are suffering through it, the people who are sick from it, and the people who've lost loved ones, etc. Uh... You know, and everybody, it's a disaster out there, a disaster. And it shouldn't be a disaster. I mean, the country, a, 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 an advanced nation should be able to, you know, shut down for a while in order to let a virus pass through or be dealt with. It yeah. shouldn't be like a few days of missed work and everybody's, uh, you know, bankrupt and back to square one. So that's kind of perplexing. Yeah. Well, this episode, this first episode, I am focusing on the coronavirus because, you know, it's affecting everyone. Everyone. Mm-hmm. And you better be taking care of yourself. I am. And uh, I know you are. I know you're very good on the health front and you're very astute when it comes to preventative care and etc. So um, I'm confident you'll be okay. I just worry about other people affecting you adversely. Yeah. Well, you know how we check in with each other every few days, you know, to make sure that we're okay. And you normally tell me everything's going to be okay. I'm just, I guess I'm wondering, is everything still going to be okay? Everything is going to be okay on the micro and macro level. On the big picture, if you look at epidemiological crises in history, they always lead to great changes. Um, a good example is after the Black Death in the mid 1300s, um, you know, things were bad, but the next phase of European history was the Renaissance. And uh, that worked out well for everybody subsequently. So um, you look at the, uh, the uh, what is it, the Spanish flu from. Uh, 1918, that was horrible and devastating. Then we have the Roaring Twenties, 
and the time of great prosperity and innovation. And, you know, the human race is designed to face these problems. I mean, we're at war with many elements of the natural world, and uh, this is just the latest battle. So I think things will be fine in the long run. On the short run, I think things will be good because people are learning to appreciate one another. They're learning to operate on their own. I mean, you know, without, with all the social distancing and this uh, winding down of crowds, people are spending more time in solitary situations. That's probably good for them as long as they stay off of social media. We got to just keep our teeth clenched and our fists clenched and, you know, hope for the best and, um, you know, uh, follow the advice of the medical experts and the scientists and we will be okay. And you can console yourself too with the idea that the vast number of people that contract this will get through it. I don't want to say just fine, but they will get through it with minimal damage. Some people will have very acute and chronic problems from it, but they too will get through it. I don't want to be one of these guys who compares this to flus or other outbreaks, but, uh, you know, because this is different. The, 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 the um, transmissibility factor is uh, very different than, than things we've encountered in the past. And uh, if you got about an hour or two, we can go through the various conspiracy theories, some of which I like, some of which I don't. <laughs> some of which Everybody are very entertaining. Some are entertaining. Um, but again, we've got to let the smoke clear. I mean, every ideologue is coming out from under the, the woodwork here to, uh, to weigh in on how this was caused by this group or another group and who's taking advantage of it and profiting from it and things. But I'm just holding my well, fire on those. let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question because I've been thinking a lot about this and, and, and we talked about this a little bit and I told you how I felt. You know, the the Chinese culture, I mean, how are you, how do you feel about the way that maybe some people are being attacked or blamed or just how maybe as a whole we're looking at China right now. And I don't mean the political state of China, just the people in general there. Well, it's never fair to stigmatize any group of people. The Chinese people didn't cause this. The Chinese people are largely victims of it. However, we don't know if there has been some malfeasance within the uh, Chinese government or military that, that, that caused this, and uh, we have to wait. And if there is, if there was, that should be dealt with appropriately, but if not in the course of that, the, the Chinese people should not be vilified. They're, they, they are, uh, they're in the same boat as the rest of us, and they're, um, yeah. So, so you know, people will say, well, this, uh, the bill has come in for globalism and uh, so on, and uh, I, I would like to just wait until the dust settles on this before we start pointing fingers and making accusations. Because we've seen throughout history, the mob is always very anxious to jump and accuse. And uh, what we learn is oftentimes uh, the accused are, in fact, were not the, the culprits. And uh, let's not have this become like a, a like a, a, a larger version of the Salem witch trials there. But, you know, epidemiological uh, problems do bring out uh, both the best and the worst in people. You know, panic and, and mass hysteria. These things are all right under the surface of everybody. This has to be navigated very carefully. People have to really keep their cool. So, so everything's going to be okay. Now, by okay, I don't mean great. I don't mean yippee. 
So a religious person would say either this is God's way of punishing us or of waking us up or bringing us out of our, you know, this secular doldrum that we were in. Not to get too heavy into environmental things, but do you think there really is a Mother Nature? She's happy right now? Well, those are two questions. Do I think, okay, do I think there's a Mother Nature? Yes, I plan well, no. a living organ, a singular living organism. We're a part of it. And, you know, that's a long, long discussion for another time. But yes, there's a, a Mother Nature. There's a mechanism that goes forward in history and in time that that regulates the, uh, the planet. And there's only one explanation for that, is that the planet is a singular living thing, Gaia. Is she happy right now? No. No. Human beings are probably one of her crowning achievements. And to see them in disarray and danger, like any good mother, she's probably very distressed about it. And that's why we're not all dying, because Mother Nature made us very strong. You know, we're, we're strong, too. This virus is strong. But this virus gets in your body, and, you know, your body fights just like a street fight, like a knife fight, a gun fight, like the great battles of history, the virus, the, 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 the immunological system which has got to be one of the most fantastic things in the whole universe, attacks us like this and destroys it. So we're not going to sit back and, you know, take it. I mean, this might be real inconvenient, and it might be real, you know, uh, bring some hard times to us, but uh, we're fighting it. We're fighting this inside of ourselves. They, they, they say, well, there's a lot of people walking around with this that probably don't even know they have it. That's because their immune systems are so strong. That's a miracle. That's a, that's a fantastic thing. And in nature, the whole population doesn't have to survive. There's a lot of people who will not make it through this. Their immune systems were not up to the path. There's your natural selection. Now, I mentioned the Black Plague before. The reason that we're not all dead from this is because of the Black Plague. The Black Plague was one of the defining immunological events in human history, at least for us here in the West, and largely for people in the Middle East as well. I mean, the Black Plague originated in the, the steppes of, of, above the Black Sea and it spread all over the place. And in doing so, you know, killed a third of the people. But the other two-thirds fought it and were victorious in that. So we're really strong, and Mother Nature made us that way. I guess when I asked if she was happy, I guess I was speaking environmental things because we're... We're all in, at home. I mean, not everybody, but, you know, more people than ever, like, at home and not running their cars and not throwing trash in the ocean. And I don't know. I just wondered on That's that level. Yes. No, yeah. There's kind of a timeout, I think, is what you might be referring to mm-hmm. here. And, uh, you know, of course, that timeout is good for all of us. And Mother Nature is happy about that. But that timeout will just remind us to be good stewards going forward. Um, people like to think about how, how destructive we are. Some people in the ecological movement, and, and, and I agree with these folks, large, but, you know, they, they'll tell you what a, you know, a parasitic, destructive life form humanity can be. True. That's what we were. But as I like to remind everybody, we're involved in speech. We don't do that anymore. We don't pollute at the levels we once did. We don't, we don't exterminate the living things at the level we once did. We still do it, but we're learning not because we're growing and evolving. These things take a long time. They take many generations. Mm-hmm. You know, a few like elite thinkers put forth a, a proposition that for improvement in a particular area, and it takes generations for it to really catch on to become like vernacular wisdom. But things that people did routinely like a generation or two ago toward animals and stuff, they wouldn't think of doing today. The things they 
they threw out in the, in the garbage or down the drain. They wouldn't think of them. So, yes, it's nice that uh, there's been a period when there's been a relaxation of the, the, the fossil fuel-based uh, pollution and everything like that. But, um, but uh, those things are on their way out anyway. I mean, uh, you know, electric cars are right around the corner. Not because it's some government mandate, but because that's where the action is. A generation from now, most cars will be electric. And then we'll learn what their problems are. Who foresaw that electric cars caused this problem or that problem? And then we'll adjust that and another generate. And in about 10,000 years, then it'll be kind of nice. <laughs> well, I think that's a good note to end on. <laughs> yes. So call me back in 10,000 years. I'm going to go uh, eat and everything. It's amazing. <laughs> well, um, thanks for all the reassurance and uh, taking a few minutes. And, Thank you. Uh, I'll give you and a... you and everybody out there. Oh, I'm sorry, what? Well, I was going to say I'll give you a call tomorrow. What were you going to say, me and everyone out there, what? You and everyone else out there, stay cool and stay safe. Do what the doctors tell you and stay out of politics for the moment. You know, turn off your turn off your news show for the moment. And just, uh, you know, we turned up. You, know, you asked me before, are you still recording this? I am. Still you asked me before about was Mother Nature happy because there is this lull in, in carbon producing emission based activity. I, but there's other entities that, that are involved with this planet, and there's a, a, a planet wide consciousness. So we'll call that like not Mother Nature, but like Mother Political. Let's call it just for shorthand Mother Political Mindedness or Mother Political Awareness. Talk about somebody who's happy there's a lull in things. People need to chill out, and now is not the time for partisanship and blame and or looking for reasons to promote a, 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 their own personal agendas. The human race, when push comes to shove, there's only one singular political imperative, and all this left and right stuff is a luxury of peace time. So there you go. Well said. All right. Did, all I, right. Pass my, did I pass the audition? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love you. I'll talk to you tomorrow. All right, I love you too, baby. And thank you so much for putting me on. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to hearing this and everybody else. I hope I was okay. Yeah, you were great. You were great. All right, thank you. Next time, we'll have a 24-year-old teacher from New Jersey, a woman self-quarantining with a cardboard rabbit, the perspective of a few young adults, two artists hunkering down in Portland, and a few little surprises mixed in. And for all of you making free music for projects like this, thank you. This episode, we use tracks from Oak Studios and music by Pedro. You can find their links in the description part of this podcast. Thanks for listening. Toodles. Toodles.